D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, a new movie, Killing Gaza, documents war crimes committed by Israel. Well, as soon as we arrived, we realized that not only are we making a documentary, but we were also making a document of war crimes that we want to be permissible at the International Criminal Court or in, you know, any kind of court that could prosecute the Israeli officials who ordered these war crimes. And one veteran activist tells her story about risking arrest for the Poor People's Campaign. So I just handed uh, the officer my ID and he said, okay, come with me. He took me, he moved me from where I was standing in one line over to another line and said, you are not free to leave. At that point, I was under arrest. And the Poor People's Campaign nears the end of its 40-day launch with a mass rally on the National Mall. And we are here today because we know why. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is inviting the public to the Stand Against Poverty Mass Rally Saturday, June 23rd at 10 a.m. on the National Mall. The rally, which is endorsed by dozens of organizations, is the culmination of 40 days of actions here in D.C. and at dozens of state capitals since May 14th. A tent was set up on the National Mall this week called Resurrection City, which is named after the camp set up 50 years ago after the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Manolo de los Santos spoke at Tuesday's teaching on the National Mall. I am from a small island in the Caribbean, Dominican Republic. As a child, my family was forced to migrate to this country. We were also forced into a livelihood of poverty that was imposed on us because we were black, because we were immigrants, not because it was given to us by God. Not because my parents were lazy or didn't work hard enough. Not because they didn't take care of their children or didn't give us the right values. We were imposed poverty by a system that imposes poverty on millions of people in this country. 140 millions of my brothers and sisters who are black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, and of colors and groups that aren't even mentioned usually. And I'm here with the Poor People's Campaign for one main reason. And I say it every day and I repeat it every week at this campaign. I'm here because I'm tired of walking alone. And I'm here because I want to walk with all of you who are present, with all of you who are part of this movement in this country and in the global movement of the poor. Only when we learn to walk together will we be ready to challenge the system. Will we be ready to strike from the bottom of our hearts at what is an heartless system. Saturday's rally is occurring at the same time that issues of the campaign, systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and militarism 
are in international headlines with the ongoing crisis of immigrant children being separated from their parents on the U.S.-Mexico border. Joining me to discuss this and other headlines is On the Ground's regular World News contributor, Gerald Horn. And I want to first ask you, Gerald, about how this treatment of children by the U.S. is playing around the world. I do know that the U.S. was condemned by the U.N. and that the U.S. has announced withdrawal from the U.N. Human Rights Commission. Well, I think you should know that Prime Minister Theresa May in London has castigated this immigration debacle, as has Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada. And when these alleged friends and allies of the United States speak in such harsh terms, you can only imagine about the way it's being received uh, globally. I think that one of the missing pieces for me as I looked at corporate media was really looking at how U.S. policy in Latin America is related to the current crisis. Not even mentioning, for example, how the United States supported the the coup in Honduras and the recent sham elections there. Everything is kind of covered in a bubble and that these people are just showing up at our border without really a lot of context. Well, I think you're onto something. I noted in a book I published on Cuba a few years ago that the hostility of the United States towards Cuba, and indeed a good deal of Latin America, is profoundly racist. In other words, if you look at the people crossing the border, they carry on their faces the ethnic heritage that is Native American. And that is a particular heritage that the United States has gone to great lengths to try to extinguish. Uh, I was reminded of a slogan by a U.S. war commander against Native Americans in the 19th century when he argued that, quote, nits make lice, unquote. And therefore, it's important to exterminate not only Native American adults, but particularly Native American children, since they grow to be adults. We know, for example, that after the overthrow of the Arbenz government in Guatemala in 1954, that the United States was justifiably accused of helping to assist genocide against the indigenous population of Guatemala. Uh, we know that in terms of forming the United States of America, that not only was there a kind of general genocide against Native American populations, but there was a particular genocide, I would say, against the Comanche population in Texas, uh, who used to roam free along the Texas-Mexico border, and now you see camps and tents being established there to house Native Americans. So I think it's very important to point out the racist background of this policy towards people who are coming into this country from south of the border. Yeah, and I also heard Native Americans this week talking about the separation of children who were put into these boarding homes and how there was a forced removal, like agents actually going out to reservations and taking children. Basically, it was a cultural genocide, you know, that they would basically lose their uh, Native uh, culture, language, and all of these things, and that this was done for a whole generation of people they call the lost generation. Not only that, but recall that a few decades ago in Argentina, the United States supported a military junta, which routinely took the children of left-wingers and dissidents, threw the parents into the ocean, and then doled out the children to be adopted 
by military officers. This was so notorious that it was made into an award-winning movie from Argentina called The Official Story. Uh, keep in mind as well that there has been an ongoing scandal involving Central American nations such as El Salvador and Guatemala concerning Euro-Americans going there to adopt children and oftentimes bringing them back with rather weak, if not phony, documentation. So we need to see this immigration debacle in a larger and wider context if we are to truly understand its evil and cruel dimensions. Yeah, when you talk about evil and cruel, I also thought about, and I know it's not on the same level, but I also thought about how people were treated after Hurricane Katrina. And there was a period of time when people were just kind of being put on buses and seemed like they were being shipped out willy-nilly. And a lot of parents were separated from their children and the authorities, you know, Brownie doing a, a good job, you know, had no real system for keeping families intact. And a lot of people lost track of their children for days, if not weeks. And then, of course, some historians have also just weighed in on the fact that this country was founded on this type of ripping away children from enslaved mothers as if they weren't human as if they had no no familial ties or motherly ties or, you know, as if they were animals. Well, it began on the coast of Africa during the unlimited decades and centuries of the African slave trade when infants were taken from the arms of their parents. That policy continued in North America and once again has become so notorious that a popular television show, Roots, had at its it's an ultimate scene, that precise scenario of a slave owner snatching a child from the arms of her parents and selling that child down the river. So once again, we need to understand the wider context of what's going on if we are truly to be active and successful in repelling this inhumane policy. Now, also, speaking of Latin America, uh, I saw one headline this week that Bolivia is, I guess, d- drawing closer to China and joining the One Belt, One Road initiative. What, what could that look like for Bolivia? Well, this does not surprise me. Despite the dislodging of Dilma Rousseff in Brazil and her predecessor Lula, who is now, of course, in prison, despite the dislodging of the Kirchners in Argentina, despite the ongoing assault on Venezuela and President Maduro, Evo Morales in Bolivia is still riding high in the saddle, uh, still has very significant and high levels of popularity. And once again, I should point out that Evo Morales is a man of indigenous descent, which, of course, makes him more likely to be uh, attacked by U.S. imperialism. And Bolivia is landlocked, and part of the One Belt, One Road initiative involves building of railroads. For example, there's discussion of building Cape to Cairo railroads in Africa and Nairobi to Lagos railroads in Africa. And likewise, there's talk about building uh, railroads across uh, South America. Uh, that would go from Guyana uh, down to Tierra del Fuego and from Rio de Janeiro across the continent and crossing uh, Bolivia to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, this would be quite liberating for the Bolivian economy, which, by the way, uh, has a very large supply of lithium, which is important for batteries, and batteries, as you know, will be very important 
for the propelling of automobiles as we enter a post-carbon future? Well, since we're uh, ending on international news, I don't know if you have any other items you saw this week that you want to share. Well, there was an article in the Los Angeles Times a few weeks ago that should have gotten more publicity. Uh, They put it with a front page uh, semi-banner headline, and it said that the Immigration and Custom Enforcement Agency, which is now running roughshod on the Texas-Mexico border, since 2012 has illegally detained, sometimes for months and years, U.S. nationals. And we're speaking of hundreds of U.S. nationals illegally detained by the immigration authorities. And what's striking is that even though the article does not say this explicitly, if you read between the lines, it's easy to come to the conclusion that disproportionately and overwhelmingly those being detained are darker-skinned people, surprise, surprise, uh, particularly Haitian-Americans, particularly Afro-Latinos, and particularly uh, black Americans who do not have uh, conventional and traditional Anglo-Saxon names. Wow. Like, under what rule, under what pretense of law are they being detained? Well, it's as if you go to the store and you don't have your ID with you uh, and you get swept up in some sort of raid and then you get detained and perhaps you cannot afford a, a lawyer. I mean, the scenarios are very easy to spin out, I'm afraid. Well, we will have to keep an eye on that and make sure that we don't have to start carrying passbooks here in the United States. Anyway, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horan. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. In environmental justice news, Greenpeace reports that Donald Trump has signed an executive order forcing so-called approval of the controversial Keystone XL pipeline, which was blocked after months of resistance from indigenous groups, activists, farmers, and millions of others. Now, the organization says that Trump is trying to shortcut the environmental review process and quickly break ground on the pipeline. Greenpeace is urging the public to submit a public comment to the U.S. State Department by June 25th and demand an environmental impact statement along the entire proposed route of the pipeline. More information about the campaign is at engage.us.greenpeace.org. And finally, in culture and media, D.C. organizers in the Movement for Black Lives held a week-long series of actions in honor of Juneteenth, culminating in a celebration Tuesday at the African American Civil War Museum in Northwest D.C. Chantel James has more. Juneteenth was commemorated in D.C. with a talk by historian C.R. Gibbs that gave context for the holiday within the history of Texas. Juneteenth celebrates the end of the enslavement of African peoples in the U.S. when on June 19, 1865, more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, official word of the end of slavery reached Galveston, Texas. After the talk by Gibbs and a question-and-answer session, members of several of the organizations who were responsible for the event, including Eugene Perrier of Stop Police Terror Project D.C., and Dominic Moodin of One DC sat at a panel as members of the audience took part in a community conversation about what liberation means for African-descended people today. 
Gibbs explained the significance of the state of Texas as the last frontier of slavery. The slaveocracy had plans for Texas, y'all. Can you imagine? 268,000 square miles. And they intended to put black folk and cotton in every last inch of it. They wanted to create a dynasty based on our blood and suffering, but of incalculable wealth for them. So when you wonder why it is that they fought so long and so hard, why they ignored the Emancipation Proclamation is because the very fiber of their being, the soul of their institution, was based on eternal enslavement of black people. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. In other cultural events in the DMV, the Hamilton is celebrating Black Music Month with the play The Night Michael Jackson Died by Camone Freeman. This Monday, June 25th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are at TicketFly.com. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, one activist's decision to risk arrest for the Poor People's Campaign. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. On June 11th, Lydia Curtis was among activists arrested at the U.S. Capitol for the Poor People's Campaign. I spoke to her earlier this week about her decision to risk arrest. My decision to get arrested was a long time coming. It has to do with my growth and development and my activity over the years because I was a part of the anti-apartheid movement in the 80s and supported organizations like the Southern Africa Support Project and Black Women and Sisterhood for Action. And I supported them, you know, by going to the meetings and publicizing and giving money and everything. But I could never quite take that step to, to get arrested. And I remember going to one of the rallies at the South African embassy. What would happen was that once you got about a block and a half away from the embassy, it would be like cordoned off. And I remember getting to that border and just, you know, feeling a fear, being afraid, you know, even getting that close, much less going across, you know, into the, the zone of getting arrested. And it has always plagued me over the years. Why at a time when I was young and, and active and, you know, very passionate about South Africa, that I didn't, you know, I didn't travel over there at that time, and I didn't do more. 
So what were some of the things that, you know, caused the fear? What were you afraid of when you were not wanting to cross that barrier? Um, I was afraid of the being confined. I didn't know, you know, how the police would treat me. I didn't know where they would be taking me. And I never said to myself, oh, you're afraid to get arrested. You know, I never could really admit that to myself until, you know, quite recently. And so when the Poor People's Campaign got resurrected, actually it's been a couple of years coming out of the Moral Mondays. About a year and a half, Reverend Barber has been traveling back and forth, coming to D.C., trying to get things going here and in other places. And I remember this huge, huge rally at the Pennsylvania Avenue Baptist Church. You know, I just felt a spark. I, you know, I felt like, wow, this is a continuation from, from 50 years ago. You know, when those people were laying in the mud, people who had nothing were laying in the mud. And I remember my, my mother-in-law, who was a social worker at the time, saying that there were so many people from the original Poor People's Campaign in the tent city that, didn't even have money to get back. So they just stayed and became, you know, she was a social worker. They, they got on the social services roster here because they had nothing. And so when, when, when I would think about them and I would think about myself and my development and my activism, I said, okay, so this time, you know, when I step up to the plate, I can do more. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more mature and I can just confront whatever it is that I'm afraid of. I can just confront it and get it out of the way. And so that's what I did. So a lot of people, when they fear getting arrest, I mean, you know, most of us, you know, we have a job, we have uh, families to take care of, we have children to uh, look after at home. So uh, what were some of the, what was your work that you were doing then and now? And did that impact your decision? Mm-hmm. So it, back then in the 80s, I don't think my home life would have been an issue. My job may have been an issue, but I didn't have a big-time job then. I kind of had an entry-level job. Well, sometimes those jobs are the most in danger, you know? <laughs> yeah, because you don't have you don't have time to take off and, and that type of thing. Yeah, you're right. But I think it was more so just, you know, I didn't, I didn't want the police touching me or, you know, pushing right. me around or, what, or whatever, or, you know, being right. in a confined space or being behind, having the door at the slammer, being in the slammer, you know, that type of thing. So are you in a different space now? I am. You know, this is my role as an experienced person. I can take the risk. I can uh-huh. stand in the gap for someone else who can't take the risk, you know, who may have young children, who may have jobs that are in jeopardy or, you know, whatever whatever sensitivities or whatever fragility they have, maybe I can stand in the gap for them because I don't have those same challenges that they have. Right. You have more freedom or you're not working now or you're retired or, you know. I do have more freedom. I am retired. I work when I want to work. So what was your experience like on the 11th, being arrested? And, you know, what what's your takeaway from your experience? Okay. Well, I did have some butterflies <laughs> the night before, and I all that week leading up to that, I felt like, okay, this is something I have to do. It was like a hump to get over. Like when you have a big project, it's just you're just ready for it to be over. And that's how I felt. But when I got there, the Poor People's Campaign is an amazing, organic, spiritual campaign. 
and it's just a lot of positive energy and love and uplift. And they have a whole system of support system in place, legal support system, bail support. Every, they have everything in place for you once you step up. And you have to go through a training to, to, in order to... There's a couple of hours of training. It's really more like orientation, but there is a training piece, like a role play. You do like a little role play. Then they give you numbers that you can call, like if, if they put you in jail, and there's a number that you can call if you need to make a call. If you're not out in a couple of hours, they, they give you that number. They give you, there's a number you can leave for your family to look for you. And they stay, there's at least two people that stay at wherever you're detained until you're out. So if you're detained until the next day, they stay there until the next day mm-hmm. and, wait, and wait for you to get out. So actually, the day that you were arrested, you all were in a group that was released pretty quickly. But the day that you were arrested, uh, a group of nine, they called themselves the, the Supreme Court Nine, I guess. They they went and prayed on the steps of the Supreme Court. And that included Reverend Liz Theo Harris and, and our own here in D.C., Reverend Graylin Hagler and a few other people, uh, seven other people. So, so that was a little different that day that you participated. Right. So what happened, what I think happened with them is that they got treated differently because they were leaders and also because there was different police. That was the federal, they were in federal custody of the Supreme Court police. They have their own police. And so they got treated like federal offenders. And when we got arrested, we were Capitol Police and Capitol Police follow MPD which is D.C., and it's a lesser charge, and they're a lot more laid back. And one police officer tapped us on the shoulder. They didn't go on the bullhorn and say, you all have five minutes to disperse. They didn't do that. They came up to us and tapped us individually, tapped us on the shoulder and said, this is your last opportunity. If you stay, you're going to be arrested. Do you want to be arrested? And you either answer yes or no, or or you just hand them your ID. So we had our IDs in our hands. So I just handed uh, the officer my ID, and he said, okay, come with me. He moved me from where I was standing in one line over to another line and said, you are not free to leave. At that point, I was under arrest. And I felt okay then, but then when we started walking, because then after after the 10 of us got lined up, then we had to walk not far, maybe like a block or half a block to where the tables were. And as we were walking... I felt my knees wobbling a little bit, (laughs) but then I just started singing a little louder. We were all singing and everything. And then all the people who were there for the rally hoop but did not get arrested, um, they were singing too. So they sang very loud. They sang louder. They clapped and cheered uh, for us. And then we had to stand off to the side until uh, they processed us. And they didn't run our licenses our IDs, they didn't do the background checks until the next day. Uh-huh. So when you went, we had to go back the next day to pay our bail. Yeah, because when you went back to pay your bail, you didn't go in the, the main door. You, had, you went in what's called the prisoner door. So they were ready for, <laughs> I guess they were ready for anything. But uh-huh. when I went through there, um, one of the people from the Poor People's Campaign went with me and waited until I got out. What's your reflection on it in terms of moving past this barrier you've had for a few decades? Well, um, the Poor People's Campaign, like I said, is absolutely amazing. I go 
all the time. I mean, as many days as I can get away, I just go just to be with that pushback energy, that standing up, speaking truth to power energy. Um, I love it. But it doesn't end with just the 40 days on the 23rd with the big rally. For me, getting arrested was inevitable. It was inevitable because things things are worse than they were in the 80s. I'm like, okay, Lydia, you have to do something. You know, it's time to up your game. They're upping their ante. You have to up your ante. I mean, that's how I, that's just how I felt. And I think that everybody who, you know, is, is concerned about which way this country is going needs to really consider, you know, stepping up and putting their bodies on the line. I thank you so much for taking this time to give us some insight into one participant in the in the Poor People's March, a, a person here in D.C., uh, an activist, uh, a worker, you know, uh, someone who just decided to step step up and take a stand. Thank you. I've been speaking with Lydia Curtis, a contributor to On the Ground and creator of the not-for-profit Siddiqui Educational Safari, which sponsors trips throughout the African diaspora. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. When we come back, perhaps only in Gaza can war crimes be documented and the world turns a blind eye. A new devastating documentary titled Killing Gaza. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and this is the fourth Friday of the month when we have an extended segment on culture, media, and arts. And for June, I want to tell you about an extraordinary and really devastating new documentary, Killing Gaza, by the journalists Dan Cohen and Max Blumenthal. And this is really the first on-the-ground and in-depth report that I've seen from inside Gaza, where 2 million people live in the world's largest concentration camp under occupation and under siege from Israel. With me today to talk about Killing Gaza is one of the filmmakers, Dan Cohen, who completed the film as an independent journalist, and he's now a correspondent for RT America. Welcome to On the Ground, Dan. Good to be with you, Esther. Well, first on this show, I've been talking about that split screen from back in May when the U.S. moved its embassy to Jerusalem with like celebration on one side and on the other side, dozens of Palestinian men, women and children being shot to death by Israeli snipers. 
And so I thought back to that horrible day watching a scene at the beginning of your film showing also something horrible, this devastating bombing of Gaza on the one hand, and then in Tel Aviv, crowds of young Israelis celebrating. So in that clip, they're saying Gaza is a graveyard. There's no school tomorrow. There are no children left in Gaza. And these are people like cheering and dancing. So is this split screen, this kind of dual reality, the untold story about what is happening in Palestine and Israel? Right, exactly. Well, that split screen that you mentioned back when the the embassy was moved to Jerusalem and there were these massive demonstrations going on in the Gaza Strip, and Israeli soldiers are opening fire on unarmed Palestinian protesters on one side of the screen, and and then on the other, you see, you know, the celebrations of Jared Kushner and Benjamin Netanyahu, and it really just shows the contradictions that, you know, that we talk in this country, our, our leaders talk about human rights and wax poetically about it, but in reality, we don't know anything about human rights. It's the total opposite. Israel, and with U.S. backing and total impunity, and weapons provided from the U.S. is gunning down unarmed protesters. If this was in Iran, if these protesters were in Iran or Venezuela, we'd be calling them pro-democracy protesters. That's what they'd be called on CNN and in our mainstream media. So it really just shows that the U.S. has been discredited, and we saw that this week when the U.S. actually pulled out from the uh, U.N. Human Rights Council. And I think in the Trump era, we've really seen the lifting of the mask that for so many years was covering the ugly face of U.S. imperialism. And in the scene that, that you described early on in Killing Gaza, I mean, what we were trying to show is the incitement in Israeli society and how among, you know, the youngest generations, this kind of genocidal ideology of Zionism has been inculcated in the youth in the most extreme ways to where there are just calling for, you know, they're, they're cheering for bombs. Um, and these are, you know, these are kids 16, 17 years old. And while it's, it's tempting and easy for someone to dismiss them as just fringe, these kids are going to the military. I mean, that was filmed in 2014. So those kids are actually finishing their military careers unless they're going to stay in. And so these kids are responsible for the occupation. They're administering it, whether they're in comfortable offices in Tel Aviv or manning checkpoints in the occupied at West Bank or administering the siege of Gaza, that is the mentality that permeates Israeli society and it's clearly genocidal. And then on the other hand, we see what happened in Gaza. Massive bombs wiping out entire families in their homes while the families were asleep. You know, we had, you saw people talking about, uh, well, let's, let's have one family member in one room and another family in another room. So in case, you know, they bomb one side of the house, then uh, one of us will survive. Um, and then people would also say, like, well, it's just all stay together in one room. That way, if they bomb us, it'll be easier to find us. So there's really no way out. And that scene, we really tried to pull the mask off and show what reality is like in the most severe way in Israel and in the Gaza Strip. So you and Max Blumenthal began filming in Gaza 
while there was a ceasefire in Israel's 2014 invasion of Gaza. And I think that invasion left, what, 2,600 people dead? It was about 2,200 people. 80% were civilians, including 551 children on the Palestinian side. And then on the Israeli side, 77 people died, and 71 of them were invading Israeli soldiers. So, you know, it just goes to show it's not really a two-sided thing at all. It was just basically a huge massacre. Yeah, and so I always try to remind people about the reality of Gaza. So you have 2 million people living there in what many people call the world's largest concentration camp under occupation and under siege from Israel in uninhabitable conditions with no clean drinking water, little food, electricity, and vital infrastructure like schools, hospitals, and hundreds of individual homes, like you just mentioned, have been destroyed. And so tell us what it was like just being there on the ground there. Well, I mean, I th- you know, I think the most important thing to understand about the Gaza Strip is that this, you know, is, is uh, you called it a concentration camp. And I think that's a fair term. I think that's a totally fair term because the idea of a concentration camp is to concentrate a population into an area away from you know, another population. And so that's exactly what it is. The Gaza Strip is as you said, 2 million people, most of them, about 80% are refugees that were expelled from what became the state of Israel in order to create an artificial demographic majority. And as the time has gone on, the violence has escalated. Since 2006, the Gaza Strip has been under siege. And, you know, there's a lack of electricity, clean water. And so when we went in, I mean, we went in, you know, during a ceasefire. And so you know, things were calm at that moment. And we were able to kind of access the population who had come out of um, the UNRWA schools that were serving as shelters where, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were hunkered down in these schools, dozens of people to a classroom. And when we came out, we met them as they were kind of digging through the rubble of their destroyed homes to find anyone who had survived or not to see whatever kind of belongings they could find. And and they were really in shock. And so the first half of the film, we basically have people tell their stories and and a number of them we animated, um, tell their stories of, you know, how they survived. And in some cases, you know, many cases, their family members did not survive. You know, the Gaza Strip, the people we found to be extremely kind. I mean, Max and I are both American and you know, we wondered if we would get resentment for being American there. And people basically would tell us, we don't like the American government, but we like American people. And so they were able to differentiate. And I think that's something that we're, that we're not very good at in this country. But overall, you know, we, we would joke that people in Gaza were trying to harm us by giving us diabetes with so many sweets. That's <laughs> the kind of hospitality we, we found. I mean, it was really incredible, such an incredible display of humanity in the harshest conditions. And, you know, some of the most searing scenes in the film uh, Killing Gaza include these firsthand testimony and actual visual evidence of war crimes and like summary executions, the bombing of children on the street. Now, following is documentation of an apparent war crime from Killing Gaza. The Israeli army executes innocent people. That's what Hisham Shamali told us, and he should know. Several members of his family were killed execution-style, including his cousin, Salem. 
23-year-old Salim Shamali led a group of volunteers from the International Solidarity Movement into the rubble of Shujaia on a search for his cousin, who had been wounded and was in need of rescue. One of those international volunteers, Joe Katrin, explained to us what happened next. On the offensive's 14th day, July 20th, 2014, four other activists and I went to the Shajaya neighborhood, which Israel had bombed for days, to accompany rescue teams through the rubble during a two-hour ceasefire. A young Palestinian, whose name we would later learn was Salem Shamali, asked us to go with him to his house, where he hoped to find his family. It sounds ridiculous now, but at the time, we thought the ceasefire would make it safe. The, the, the house we are going to check is not the house there, the house after it. Okay. Yes? Are we going to make it? We, uh, <laughs> Inshallah. As we crossed an alley with a clear line of sight to Israeli positions by the separation barrier, a gunshot from their direction struck the ground between us. We scattered into two groups, sheltered behind buildings on either side. After a pause, Salem stepped into the alley, hoping to lead his group to our side, but was struck by another bullet and fell to the ground. As he lay on his back, two more rounds hit him and he stopped moving. The gunfire kept us from reaching him. When Israeli artillery began flying overhead and striking the buildings behind us, we were forced to retreat, leaving him. We only learned his name two days later when his mother, father, sister, and cousin recognized him in a video I had tweeted of his killing. That was documentation of an apparent war crime included in the documentary Killing Gaza. And like we know about the boys playing soccer on the Gaza beach being like murdered, I think guess also in 2014. And we know about the medic Razan al-Najjar being shot in the back by Israeli snipers a couple weeks ago. So tell us what can happen with this evidence. You know, the UN and the International Criminal Court have either been unable or unwilling to provide, you know, justice for the Palestinian people. Well, as soon as we arrived, we realized that not only are we making a documentary, but we were also making a document of war crimes that we want to be permissible at the International Criminal Court or in, you know, any kind of court that could prosecute the Israeli officials who ordered these war crimes. Uh, we document testimony of Palestinians being used by Israeli soldiers as human shields. And if you watch mainstream media, if you watch, you know, CNN, Jake Tapper, Wolf Blitzer, MSNBC, really mainstream media across the board in the U.S., you would think that Palestinians use each other as human shields. But I mean, we didn't find any evidence of that, and I think it's basically a canard. And so we, do we documented numerous instances of that, of people, you know, civilians being intentionally targeted. 
we found just overwhelming evidence of war crimes. And I mean, I would hope that this would add to the overwhelming evidence of Israeli war crimes to be used uh, for prosecution at the ICC. But I also, you know, I'm aware that the ICC has been used to prosecute. It's basically, I see it as the empire's court in which it's prosecutes only African leaders, kind of, you know, Western designated enemies. And so, if, you know, if you look at the history of who the ICC has prosecuted, it has been all African leaders, with the uh, exception of... Milosevic. Yugos- yes, I'm sorry, Milosevic, exactly, in Yugoslavia. So, you know, I don't have a lot of hope there. But nonetheless, we strove to provide ample evidence of that. So tell me, what was your experience gaining access to Gaza to report there? You know, Israel has refused entry into the country and and to the places it's occupying and blockading to human rights activists. And they just introduced legislation to somehow block human rights groups to film Israel soldiers committing these human rights violations. Well, Max and I are both, you know, two white Jewish American guys. And so, you know, when you land in, in Tel Aviv, they kind of roll out the red carpet for you. And that was the experience we had at the Israeli government press office where you get press credentials, uh, which you need to enter the Gaza Strip. And, you know, I, I reapplied for press credentials a few times over the two and a half year period that I was in and out of the country. And on the last time, after they kind of, I think, started paying attention to what I was doing, they denied my press credentials. And it was for clearly political reasons, even though, you know, I met all of their criteria. And so then that's kind of where we had to end the film. You know, I don't know if I'm allowed back into the country at this point. The last time I was there, I was given a visa for a very short time, and I suspect it's for political reasons. But I think we've seen Israel is now denying entrance to all kinds of people based on their political views, including Jews. And, you know, I mean, I think if any other country were to ban Jews for their political views, it would be clearly denounced as anti-Semitic around the world. But because Israel is doing it, you know, the self-proclaimed Jewish state, then it's perfectly accepted. But I think it really shows what Israel is about, that it's, it is not a Jewish state in the sense of the Judaism that I and so many Americans were raised with, where it's about humanitarianism and openness and, you know, embracing uh, all parts of humanity. But it's actually just about a narrow definition, an apartheid definition, and enforcing an artificial demographic majority, and that demographic majority is what requires the ghettoization of millions of people in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank and throughout the Middle East and really around the world of so many millions of Palestinians who are not allowed to return to their homes. So has there been any reaction to the documentary Killing Gaza in Israel? I don't suppose it's actually been shown there. I mean, right now they're systematically trying to ban, for example, any presentations about the Nakba, like basically trying to keep people ignorant or brainwashed. So, Well, I mean, I've looked at the download list on, on a Vimeo page and there's been a handful of downloads in Israel, but I haven't seen any real reaction. And I think, you know, the idea, of course, is first they just ignore it. And I think this characterizes what the Israeli public has undergone as kind of brainwashing and they have no idea really. A lot of people don't really know much about the crisis in Gaza 
and it's carefully hidden from the public and then when anything comes out they're told all these demonstrators are terrorists and then the people just simply believe it so it's that easy the thing about israeli society is it's so far right the political conversation is on the left you have a segregationist party and on the right you have a genocidal party who wants to expel and kill everyone who refuses to leave immediately. And so there's not really any movement in Israel for us to, you know, on the outside to get our weight behind and to support. And so that's why we basically aimed our movie for the outside, for Western audiences, American audiences, European audiences, in order to kind of show them this brutal reality that in particular, while the American government and EU are supporting wholeheartedly and, you know, really show how, how the sausage is made. All right. So, you know, as a journalist, you know, I want to get your reaction to some of these anti-free speech laws in Israel that are seemingly trying to gain a foothold in the United States. Even though we have a First Amendment here, they may not have one there. And some of these laws would, for example, outlaw some forms of participation in the boycott divestment sanctions movement. And there's another law that would outlaw criticism of Israel as being anti-Semitic. So some of the same things that we're talking about in terms of revealing human rights violations, war crimes, these laws might try to make that illegal. We know that they would face a very stiff court challenge, but just the fact that they could be passed is really alarming to me. Absolutely. I think it's very clear that Israel is actually the greatest threat to free speech in America, and we need to be very alarmed and push back against these movements to shut down, to stifle criticism of Israel. And, you know, we see these anti-BDS bills that are being passed by Democratic and Republican senators and congressmen. And it's really troubling. The ACLU is, is pushing back against some of these bills, but we see that any criticism of Israel is, is being regarded as, as anti-Semitic. And, and certainly it's possible to be anti-Semitic and critical of Israel, but criticism of Israel is not in itself anti-Semitic. And I think that's a really important point to make. And that, you know, this whole idea that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic inherently is really running out. They, you know, the Israel lobby has exploited that so much in this country that it's kind of run its course and, the more photos and videos of massacres of unarmed protesters that come out, that, you know, Israel is kind of losing this media battle. And I think, you know, we're going to see in this country a battle for free speech along the lines of criticism of Israel and boycott divestment sanctions movement, which continues to grow. This whole documentary world is very interesting to me. I mean, most of the movies that I want to cover are documentaries. But I noticed that Netflix seems to have been taken over by a lot of the neoliberal establishment. Susan Rice has some kind of position at Netflix now. And they just signed some kind of deal with Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. And then a lot of us noticed how this documentary uh, out of Syria by the White Helmets actually won an Oscar, not this year, I guess, but, but last year. And then this year, another documentary out of Syria won. And I'm just I'm wondering if you want to give any feedback on, you know, as you navigate that documentary world, how free of a space is that? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right that the neoliberal establishment and basically the holdover from the Obama administration has embedded itself within Netflix. And Netflix is now the largest media company in the world. It's overtaken Disney. And as you said, Susan Rice, you know, Obama's former uh, national security uh, advisor, is on the board of directors at Netflix, also Obama's chief of staff is at Netflix, and so and Barack and Michelle Obama now have their own show. And there are a number of films about Obama's foreign policy, you know, debacles from Libya to Syria to Ukraine that really whitewash exactly what they were. And basically, you know, we've been uh, in a lot of these countries, in Ukraine and Syria, where we funded extremist groups, you know, we basically indirectly armed al-Qaeda in Syria, and we armed the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other groups in Ukraine. But these are portrayed as democratic uprisings, and it really gives Obama the ability to create his own historical narrative of his own administration and, and policies. And so, of course, with our film, because it's, it kind of shows a narrative and, and a reality that's at odds with the establishment narrative, we're kind of kept out of things like that. So, you know, you're not going to see our film uh, promoted in the, it's not going to win an Oscar. It's, we're just showing it in little spaces around the country as much as we can. And, uh, you know, you got to watch it on Vimeo. It's, it's not going to be shown on TV, at least in the U.S. So, I mean, I think, you know, what you're touching on really speaks volumes to what the media space has, has shrunk down to in this country while we're, you know, told that we're free and we have freedom of speech. It's, it's clearly under attack. And, you know, small-time independent filmmakers like us have to resort to kind of grassroots funding and, and work in order to make our films happen. Definitely. We will, for this show, for On the Ground, we'll try and do some type of screening for you here in D.C. And and I just really think that that whole documentary space and that whole ability of people to basically create a different narrative other than other than the truth is really disturbing. And a lot of people really don't know that. And they, they see the Oscars, they see these productions coming forward and winning awards. It just sheds a light on a different aspect of media that I don't think people get a, give a lot of thought to. Anyway. Definitely. I mean, I think you brought up the White Helmet. It's incredible to see essentially Al-Qaeda has been rehabilitated in the American mind through the White Helmets. I mean, this is what an ISIS hostage, John Cantley, I believe, he's a journalist, called the ISIS Civil Defense or ISIS Fire Brigade. And this is a group that has, you know, worked hand in glove with Al-Qaeda, taken part in summary executions, and works exclusively in opposition-held territory in Syria where our so-called moderate rebel allies operate. And they've been paid, they were created and paid for by the United Kingdom and the United States government in USAID. And basically, a lot of their work is to film, you know, war pornography completely decontextualized and then that footage is sent over and CNN and you know mainstream media outlets air it and try to portray what's going on in Syria as some catastrophe where the US has been totally uninvolved and has just stood by and then you know we need to have some kind of more military intervention in the name of 
humanitarianism, and it just shows the lengths that war propaganda has to go to in order to convince Americans that more war is actually humanitarian after so many, you know, after Iraq, which is across the board is understood to have been a total disaster predicated on a number of lies. And then we saw Libya, which, you know, in 2011 was said to be, uh, you know, we're stopping an evil dictator. And now, you know, there are open slave markets in Libya as a result. In Syria, you know, where at least half a million people have been killed. Also, the trust in mainstream media is at an all-time low. And so people, you know, don't really believe it. And they, they don't really believe what they're seeing on television so much. They're not sure what the lie is, but they know they're being lied to. And so, you know, that's where we feel like, you know, our work can come in and we establish, uh, you know, an honest depiction of what's happening on the ground as much as we're able to with our limited access and also to show Americans how they're being lied to by corporate media. Well, I guess when you look at media here and when you look at it in Israel, there's just a lot to think about in terms of how people are being programmed, basically. Anyway, (laughs) yes, so I've been speaking with Dan Cohen, one of the filmmakers of the new documentary, Killing Gaza. He completed the film as an independent journalist, and now he's a correspondent for RT America. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. Thanks so much, Esther. And that reminder about media, history, facts, and perception management will do it for today's show. I want to thank again Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Gerald Horn. The music we played this hour included sounds from week six of the Poor People's Campaign here in Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Ivarum. I'll be joining the Pieces Collective at the grand opening of their week-long pop-up shop this Sunday at 1758 Park Avenue in Baltimore. More information is at the Pieces Collective on Facebook. And of course, I'll be at the Stand Against Poverty Mass Rally on the National Mall Saturday, June 23rd. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace.